Welcome to Aftermath, the official podcast of the Math Citadel. I am co-founder and research scientist Jason Nathcock. I am other co-founder and chief scientist Dr. Rachel Trailer. And this is episode number six. Been a little while since episode five. Well, we we were a little bit preoccupied. Uh, SBR proposals do take a little bit of a priority over over podcasting, at least until those are done. Plus, we only get to do aftermath after we've done the math. Yeah, I was playing with teaching myself um, shift register circuits, and it's it's pretty cool. I, I'll refrain from trying to explain it until I myself understand it better. Maybe a post coming up? Yeah, I I do need to get back on writing some, some posts. There's a whole bunch that I keep coming up with and then forgetting that I meant to write them. But like you said, we have got plenty to do with those proposals. Yeah. Um, so we had done a couple of series and or started some, you know, some of them were just collections. We did the one collecting small things we've learned in business, mm-hmm. um, you know, little tidbits here and there that, that most people don't discuss. And then for fun, we were collecting... Uh, peeves. 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 Lots of peeves. Well, the math peeves, right? Right, right. Only have, math peeves. Yeah, there's not enough podcast time for all my peeves. Um, our math peeves are pretty lighthearted. This series, we're actually going to start and finish all the way, and it's going to have an undercurrent um, of a particular book that that we've read and found particularly profound, especially as it applies to our business and how we run things and some of the challenges that we see in creating essentially what I would consider a very unorthodox type of business mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of ways. And the book is called Quiet by Susan Kane. the tagline being the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking. So, Jason, um, do you consider yourself an introvert? Absolutely. Uh, I consider myself sort of a heavy introvert. It, it Yeah. I, uh, I keep to myself, kind of. But... But I think what's important to to establish is what it means to be introverted. What is introversion, really? So, for example, um, I myself am also probably equally as introverted in preference as you are, um, even though I tend to end up being a little bit more customer-facing, networking, all of that stuff. Um, I'm more active on Twitter, and I'll interact with, with people maybe a bit more than you do. And that brings me to the common misconception um, that we both have had to fight is that introversion is not synonymous with shy. Right. Um, it's not synonymous with awkward or ill-spoken. Mm-hmm. Uh, not at all. Introversion is simply, a, I guess you'd call it a personality type for, for the first thing that comes to my head, a very strong preference for solitary activities or small group interactions. In other words, interactions socially for us, unless they're with people we are extremely close to, mm-hmm. are very draining. Right. And that's what it comes down to. The, the best definition I've been given about introversion and extroversion, it comes down to how you get your energy, like how you work with your energy through the day. What interactions energize you charge you up and take energy away. And and neither introversion nor extroversion is um you know it's, it's neither good nor bad either way. Right. And 
people fall on a spectrum, right? Um, my sister, for example, is actually, she leans extroverted, for sure. She's, she's gregarious, she's bubbly, she's charismatic, she's very social, but she needs time to herself too. So, so the other misconception is that extroverted people are always partying. No, they, they need some quiet time too. Just they can derive energy and happiness and kind of be uplifted by social activities Whereas introverted people, even if we're enjoying them, like I do the tech field day um, events, the three days of woof, that is a lot of socializing and in three days and a lot of people. And I enjoy it. I love that community. Those are great people. I am drained. It's kind of like for those three days, it's sort of nonstop. I am drained after those three days, even though I enjoyed every minute of it. Um, That would be the difference for, for that example. And... Usually when, when businesses start, um, you have, what, what are the famous pairs? Jobs and Wozniak, right? Steve and Steve. One was more on the business side. He was a very good, he kind of brought the image and the charisma and to, to Apple. And Wozniak stayed kind of got to hide behind the scenes you know, on the on the technical side. Not that Jobs wasn't technical, but that's kind of how they divided the labor. A lot of startups are, are that way. You know, as even if you start out with a couple of technical people and a great idea, what's the first thing those VCs are going to force on you? An extroverted CEO or salesperson. Mm-hmm. And we don't take VC funding. Um, we are fully bootstrapped. So what that means for us is, you know, We are two introverts having to do all of it. There are advantages to having that, you know, that extrovert and an introvert together because both of those personality types bring different things to the table and make for a good, well-rounded business. Yes. Like, so, so all of those parts that you need, somebody there can be suited to them. Right. And for us, we don't have that. Um, The best we've got is for right now, I guess it's me and Mm -hmm. that's arguably not that great um it it doesn't make for the easiest or smoothest sailing no so basically as we're going through this book we're going to discuss some of our business our business philosophy our business strategies in conjunction with susan kane's notion that introverts do have some power and have gotten a bit shoved out of the business realm and those of you guys listening you know, I bet there's a lot of people who are very introverted who have considered starting a business and then the thought of sales and networking and everything that goes with that caused them to break out in a cold sweat and so it stops you from doing it. The duties typically associated with the extroverts frighten them off. Yes, and I'm, I would be um, dishonest if I didn't admit that even now the networking and sales and figuring out how to sell properly still makes me break out in a cold sweat. Um, and it's a huge challenge for both of us. So we're going through this book and and we just kind of want to have an aftermath discussion. Right. Um, and we're going to go chapter by chapter and then kind of discuss what we've learned from this book in context of our business. Sort of the salient points as, uh, as pertaining to our business operations and things that really struck us as we as we read. So, um, and obviously, I I could not recommend more 
Um, whether you are introverted, extroverted, somewhere in between, to pick this book up and give it a read. She has a great writing style. Um, she herself is an introvert, although she is a professional speaker now and used to be a, a lawyer. I, I don't know if she still is. Um, but this book was highly informative and highly relatable if you're introverted. And even when she, she you know, spends some time with extroverts and I found some insightful and enlightening things that changed my opinion of extroverts whom I used to be more wary of right, um, and less appreciative of. So we're going to go through the whole book chapter by chapter, one chapter per episode, and just kind of discuss things that we've learned in the context of two introverts, two extreme introverts trying to run a business um, to give a little bit more of a, a deep business journey. So what is the name of the first chapter? So the name of the first chapter is The Rise of the Mighty Likeable Fellow. And what she does is she traces um, a cultural shift in America in particular is what she focuses on from what um, a cultural historian named Warren Sussman calls a culture of character to a culture of personality. So what's detailed is, you know, from her book, and, and I quote, in the culture of character, the ideal self was serious, disciplined, and honorable. What counted was not so much the impression one made in public as how one behaved in private. The word personality did not exist even in English until the 18th century. And the idea of having a good personality is not widespread until the 20th. And when Americans embraced a culture of personality... Americans started to care more about how they were perceived by others than before. So people who are bold and entertaining became role models. Um, and so Sussman's quote was, every American was to perform, uh, I'm sorry, to become a performing self. And she chronicles, um, she characterizes the reasons behind it as the rise of industrial America. So as, as America became more urbanized, instead of living on small towns and farms where you knew everybody, for your whole life, right? You, you develop those deep relationships. Um, when you move to a city, and many of you guys can probably identify with this. We've moved a lot. We sure know. And uh, I can actually vouch for living in a very small community as I was growing up and the change from one to the other. So Arlington was a big city for you, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I remember you telling me, like, you've never really lived in a big city before. And I said, sure I have. I'm in Arlington. Said, uh, no, no, no. See, I went to college in downtown Atlanta Talk about a, you know, a place where everybody is a stranger. Um, so the idea is as, as urbanization grew, you were no longer working with your, your neighbors, um, but complete strangers. So as she puts it, citizens morphed into employees and we became, it became necessary to figure out how to make a good impression on people to whom we had no civic or family ties. So making all the right appearances and performing as a as a good person was how you were a good person. Right. So, um, for example, she she shows this cultural shift by looking at um, self help guides, and and those have been around for ages. And um, so, this cultural historian Sussman counted the words that appeared the most frequently in the personality driven advice manuals of the early 20th century and compared them to the character guides of the 19th century. And the earlier guides, um, as 
Susan Cain says it, emphasize attributes that anyone can work on improving. So the most common words used in, in the character guides were citizenship, duty, work, honor, reputation, manners, morals, and integrity. And, you know, uh, Dale Carnegie is what is who Susan Cain credits with kind of the spark of that shift. And the new guides embraced qualities that were not easy to acquire. So you either kind of have these sorts of things into the personality trait or you don't. So the, um, the personality guides of the early 20th century used most commonly words like magnetic or fascinating, attractive, dominant, energetic, and stunning. So, um, these are things that you can't necessarily practice at and get better. Like, so how have you noticed, you know, for example, when, when you think about, um, a stereotypical, let's, let's say an executive, um, an executive, a marketing manager, a salesperson, someone who's who's traditionally very customer facing, and compare that to, say, your stereotype of um, a scientist or a mathematician. Do any of those latter words describe a stereotype of a scientist or mathematician? No, not to me. No, not at all. Um, in fact, there was that thing I sent you on Twitter that seventh graders, um, seventh graders. <laughs> We're given a task to draw and characterize a stereotypical mathematician. Man, those little guys were harsh. Yeah, the sharp knives really came out on that one. Oh my gosh. Um, And not that seventh graders are going to care about this podcast, but seventh graders grow up. Yeah. Seventh graders grow up into adults and... They're likely reflecting an opinion of the people they know, too. And the people that they know are are people that we are trying to potentially do business with. and it's not to say that, you know, we as mathematicians don't have some fault in those stereotypes, and some of them are true. I think all my friends are only mathematicians. Um, you know some engineers. I do know some engineers. Yeah, I'm getting out there. Um, you know, it's not to say we don't bear some responsibility for refusing to engage with people that would be considered from a personality perspective on the opposite side of the aisle. So we bear some of that responsibility and... and I recognize, especially as we're going into business, that we do need to try to reach across the aisle even when it's hard. Yes. And in particular, what else um, that struck me from a business perspective is interesting was the evolution of ads um, between that, that culture of character versus culture of personality. So early print ads, uh, Susan Cain says, were straightforward product announcements. So, for instance, Eaton's Highland Linen, the freshest and cleanest writing paper, right? So what is that? That is, I sell a product. This is my product. Here are descriptors of my product. Right. This is why, this is, you know, bullet, bullet, bullet. This is why my product is the best one. And we list the qualities of that product. This is why my paper is better than your paper. You need paper, right? And you, basically the customer did the work up front to decide what they need. Right. And it was up to me as the business person to convince you, if I'm in that particular market, that the thing you already know you need should be bought from me because mine is better. Right, right. So then the the next, um, the new personality driven ads, uh, as she puts it, cast consumers as performers with stage fright from which only the advertiser's product might rescue them. And the ads tended to focus on the hostile glare of the public spotlight. So all around you, people are judging you silently, warned a 1922 ad for Woodbury's soap. 
that's actually kind of ominous. Yeah, it's um, actually pretty dark. You know, ever tried selling yourself to you? A favorable first impression is the greatest single factor in business or social success. So an ad for Dr. West's toothbrushes. And so then we can sit and talk about that um, for a second. So when we first kind of started selling and tweeting and trying to advertise, um, what was our, what's our natural inclination? Our idea was basically the old school way, which was like, if you're, if you're looking at this advertisement, you've already figured out what you need. Here's why ours is best. Right. We, we assumed, right. Companies need R and D. Right. Companies need R and D. We do R and D. Okay. That's out of the way. Now it's simply our job to explain why the mathematical R and D and in particular, obviously our mathematical R and D is worth your money and you know what were the things that we we would cite for our bullet points right why why use ours well our solutions to your problems are going to be bulletproof time tested they are going to you know, like stand the test of time they are going to be totally rigorous they are going to open up a wealth of applications right so it's a a you get a huge ROI in many different facets from what we offer right if you spend 100k on our research and get three patents out of that, you know, you've increased your company valuation potentially by millions of dollars, let alone if you actually build the thing. Um, and one solution that can apply to multiple verticals saves you money, right? The, and those were very um, dry, factual. Very straightforward. Straightforward things. And that's, that's you know, I thought I was, um, I would go to CTOs and this would be the, the pitch. And there, you know, we knew that, most large companies especially already fund universities so so the we we assumed that the model was understood yeah the model was understood right we are simply just taking what they know to be typically done in a university and moving it to the private sector so we thought they understood that yeah and like on the minimal level like you're going to save a boatload if you went through university most of your money will be going to overhead and won't even be getting to the researchers so cut out the middleman as it were go with us we have both academic and industry experience. And what do you think we found uh, after you know we've been incorporated? Admittedly, we're not um, we're not a an established. You know, we wouldn't say we were established. We're still quite new, but you know, we've been to several several business meetings and. It wasn't like crickets or anything like that. It's just it's hard going because we stepped right over that. Uh, oh, you've already determined that you need this and let us tell you why ours is good. Right. What we found was that that, um, that straightforward, almost, I don't want to say academic presentation, but um, we'll say very dry. I mean, I, I admit it. Even if I'm speaking with conviction and passion for what I do, the end result is I'm giving you, you know, a little bit more of a you know, accounting style list of, of reasons. I mean, you're not being an entertainer. Not at all. And um, what we found is that that method of pitching is not not very well received. Even though that's the nature of what we are selling, it it doesn't mean that the way that we present it will work the same way, like in sales. So we... we um, we had to definitely go back to the drawing board a little bit. You know, 
we didn't have and still don't have any trouble um I would say convincing people of the value, both historic and current as it pertains to our specific areas of research, we don't have any trouble convincing people of the value of mathematics and the value of investment in it. Nor that we are completely competent and capable practitioners thereof. Oh, yeah, that's, you know, that um, has well, not been a, a, a doubt in any of the, the attempts that we've made. So... You know, what do you think is the what do you think the problem was? I mean, especially after reading the difference in those those two ads as we shifted culturally, what do you think our um, you know the difference is? Well, we weren't solving that upfront part that we were expecting the customer had already done, which was to assess their need for it. We actually have to come along and bring that to their awareness. To me, also one of um, one of the things that I've run into is, and and I finally managed to boil this down. You know why a lot of the, and I'll I'll go ahead and be just you know straight up blatant. A lot of the objections that I got had nothing to do with my work. Right. Um. Who do you know? Where's your PhD from? Your reputation. Who else is backing you? So those kinds of questions, right, provide a bit of a hump and no amount of my explaining my papers or potential applications or even my own um, track record of patents and, you know, end-to-end solutions that, that I've built can overcome those objections. And I got frustrated, so frustrated. Poor Jason had to listen to me rant all the time about this because I, I so frustrated. I couldn't figure out what I was doing wrong, or if it's even surmountable. And I f- think I've finally figured out, you know, I, I've i had to learn to read between the lines, right? They're saying certain objections. What are they really objecting to? What is the what they really value? And the thing that frustrated me is it didn't seem to actually be research and results. Um, and when I finally, you know, I would mount an argument like, well, you fund Harvard. You fund Harvard and they haven't produced, you know, that group hasn't produced anything for you in three years and you spent $300,000 on them. You know, doesn't that irritate you? And they'd acknowledge. Right. Um, they they'd, follow. They'd even acknowledge that it was irritating and and yet there was still this clear wall there. It wasn't, it wasn't reaching them. And I finally figured out that what... You know, what many of these customers wanted, I was prestige, right? right? You, and I, I liken it, and like I said, I will, I'll, I think we should be a little bit blatant here. I liken it to, you know, what's the, why do people buy designer purses? <laughs> you know, why do they buy designer purses? I don't think they're more functional than the $20 one I bought at Target. Yeah. But it, why do they do it? Because of the way it looks whenever they're walking around with it. Right. So the value that they derive from spending the money on the Gucci or... Don't look at me. Whatever. Gucci's a designer. We'll go with that, right? I mean, I've pulled a total... I think so. Louis Vuitton. We'll go with Louis Vuitton because that's like the little... That's the little um, little diamond thing, right? With the LV. Oh, is that what that is? Is that what that is? Okay, we'll go with that. So 
yeah, hate on us. Obviously, we don't know designers. Clearly, our value system's a little bit different. I haven't watched any movies about that, so. Um, oh, the, the Prada. That's one. Pra- okay. Because there's the okay. Devil Wears Prada. Okay, that's true. So, yes. Okay, we've got a designer. We've got one. I don't know if they make purses, but whatever. The point being that the value of buying that purse actually comes, it comes with esteem. It like- comes with esteem, status, and other people's perception of the carrier of that purse. You know, you, when when um, someone is carrying a designer purse that costs tons of money and everyone knows the name and the label and how expensive they are, then they get a particular image of the person carrying it. You are successful and fashionable and all of those more emotional um, prestige things. And what frustrated me, you know, when we came back and we discussed it, we're the functional purse, you know, we're, we aren't a designer, you know, and, and from a competitor standpoint, um, we will never be Harvard or Stanford. You know, those, those um, institutions have spent hundreds of years building up a reputation of prestige. We will be dead before we can directly compete with them. Right. So once we kind of decide, you know, once I kind of recognized we thought our value system is is pretty simple, right? We we don't really care about labels. We just want it to work, and that would you know as evidenced by the fact that it took us a good minute to come up with a designer for an example. Merit, merit is what we're looking at. Yes. So you know, to me, it shouldn't have mattered that my doctorate isn't from an Ivy League university. I finished in three years, the fastest anyone has gone through that program. I passed prelim exams before I took the class and I have a doctorate that I would stake my life on. Mm -hmm. Um, But the name on the university isn't fancy. And even my, you know, even my advisor, right? People care a whole bunch about who your advisor was. And, and Dr. Korsnowski is a brilliant, wonderful advisor. I learned so much from him. Um, In particular, I learned a lot from him as an aside of what he didn't do for me. He made me struggle, you know, through everything. And that was the best thing he could have done for me. And what's interesting about him in particular is um, there is a project called the Mathematics Genealogy Project. Oh, yes, yes. And what it does is it looks at your academic genealogy. So what that means is, you know, uh, who was my advisor? My advisor was Dr. Andrzej Korzynowski at the University of Texas of Arlington. And who is his advisor? So that would, his my advisor's advisor would be my academic grandfather, right. for example. And just for fun, right? It's yeah, yeah. super fun to do it. I traced my advisor's genealogy all the way back. And the names comprise some of the people that form the entire foundation of probability yeah titans and analysis um which makes sense he's polish and a lot of that was invented by eastern european and russian mathematicians and what was interesting about the way um that genealogy worked was these i mean like i said kolmograph is in there um was Sierpinski in yours? Sierpinski. You know, all of these extremely illustrious names. And what I found interesting is, as illustrious as they are now, um, they did not take many students. Many of them took between three and seven total their entire life. Yeah. Um, 
those names and that genealogy that I come from... Talk about a pedigree. ...is a stronger mathematical pedigree than anybody coming from the University of Washington or Stanford or whatever. And that's not to sit there and say that that should justify, you know, you're funding my research because my research itself should, should stand. But my decision to go with him was based, and actually that was before I knew, my decision to go was based on his ability as a researcher. And that's why I wanted to work with him. That's why I did not stay at Georgia Tech for my doctorate. Which, uh, while you're mentioning it, like that's not a slouch school either. No, actually, no, I've got the, the top engineering school in the country. I've got the emotional scars to prove I've gotten through a couple degrees there. But we we have a value system that does not see labels what we like our originality. We like custom stuff. Like we love that um, that store in Campbell. Mm-hmm. You know, Redemption. They have unique stuff. Local designers handcrafted. Right. And those that's our value system. And we brought that to our business, right? right? We handcraft everything, everything with the same level of care that any artist would. And when we work with a company, what we bring to them is a level of passion and care that is going to produce unique custom solutions for them, even as they are generalizable to other companies, other verticals, but we are going to take the time and not just sell you, you know, a, a software box, but we want to take the time to understand and craft a custom dress for you, for for lack of another way of, you know, another way of putting it. And we thought that was the selling point, right? Um, one dress to rule them all, right? The only <laughs> yeah. formal dress you're ever going to need because it fits you so perfectly and it's going to be amazing. That's the first time I've heard you say that. <laughs> one dress to rule them all. Yes. Um, I mean, I'd be totally cool if someone like gave me one of those and custom did one for me. That would be that would be amazing. But what we found, um, what we found is that not many businesses, in fact, not all businesses, in fact, many businesses that we approached do, do not have quite the same value system of simple utility that we do. So what is one of our challenges? What do you think a challenge is? We can't compete with Harvard directly. We can't compete with, you know, even Georgia Tech or even University of Texas and Arlington. We cannot compete directly with them. So um, I actually had a, and this kind of helped solidify it for me. I had a conversation um, with another small business owner who does content marketing. Um, his name is Keith Townsend. I actually met him at one of the Tech Field Day events, and he very graciously took the time to actually speak to me. And he used to be a former management consultant and um, is very charismatic, uh, very um, very good at seeing industry trends and what people want. Would you describe this person as an extrovert? You know, that's my impression. But obviously, you know, maybe he's introverted and is just particularly charismatic. So I can't, I can't make that assumption. I would say he's, I will characterize him as very well-spoken, intelligent, and charismatic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what he was trying to help me understand was he has the same problem, right? A, a content marketing or a, a consultant cannot compete directly with PwC or Accenture, so what, what is, you know, and as he put it, and he put it so eloquently, um, 
We have to offer something unique. What does an independent bookstore have that Amazon doesn't? It's not necessarily selection, because Amazon has a bigger selection. We all know that. But the experience of going to those the the little bookstore. And in actually, let's take Recycle Bookstore in, okay. in San Jose. Because I actually think, you know, for example, they're um they do offer things you cannot find on Amazon. That's true. In their cases, they're they're offering they have books that are one of a kind, out of print. Because they're a secondhand bookstore, people just bring them. You never know what you're gonna find. They have books from before the time of ISBN and Library of Congress. Yes. That we have bought. Right. So I would say, you know, why are they so successful? And I think they are because they offer something unique. They offer a handcrafted experience. They offer something unique. And will they appeal to anyone just looking for, you know, a mass market paperback to read on the beach? No. No. No, they they won't. They, They appeal to a certain subset of people who value that experience. And even if when they're going in that bookstore, what are they getting out of it? Maybe maybe they like kind of being seen doing the independent thing. You know, maybe it's an image thing. Maybe. Um, rather than, you know, just I'm getting a used book for a decent price. You know, some people go in there for that. But the reasons they're going in may be different. Mm-hmm. So. But they're already marketing to the people that have decided, like, I want to go to this bookstore. I want to walk to it and I want to go inside and I want to feel the books in my hands. And I want to spend hours in a disorganized bookstore with a cat you can pet and never come out with the same thing twice. Yeah. Um, so I think for us, you know, in, in reading this this chapter, in particular the advertising, um, the advertising stuff... I think that's something, you know, and we'll probably address this in later podcasts as we we ourselves kind of go through it, but it's a worthwhile thing to think about where we're going to fit in in that. And, and, you know, all business is a learning experience. Let's see. Um, So a couple of other things and challenges that that we saw arise in this chapter was, you know, the, the advent of the culture of personality you know, came to what the model employee looked like. And a lot of introverted people are going to identify, you know, identify with this. So university admissions officers, you know, changed to look not for the most exceptional candidates, but for the most extroverted. Harvard's provost Paul Buck declared in the late late 1940s that Harvard should reject the sensitive neurotic type and the intellectually overstimulated in favor of boys of the healthy extrovert kind. In 1950, Yale's president, Alfred Whitney Griswold, declared the ideal Yaley was not a beetle-browed, highly specialized intellectual, okay, ouch, but a well-rounded man. Yeah, you can kind of feel right. the you, opinions you get the of idea. the time. Um, and and the, the most, I, I'll admit, a hurtful uh, quote from another dean, um, we see no use for a brilliant introvert. And the college deans grasped very well that the model employee of the mid-century, even one whose job in rarely involved dealing with the public like a research scientist in a corporate lab, been there, <laughs> was not a deep thinker, but a hearty extrovert with a salesman's personality. Customarily, whenever the word brilliant is used, it either precedes the word but or is coupled with such words as erratic or eccentric. The fellows will be having contact with other people in the organization, said a 1950s executive about the hapless 
Ouch. Scientist in his employ. You can't help but kind of put on a tone when you read it. Hey, and it helps if they make a good impression. Um, The scientist's job was not only to do the research, but to also help sell it. So I can identify with that as as well. And how do you feel about that? Right. You know, I feel like for me, um, those two skill sets, are they mutually exclusive? Do you feel like when you think about trying to figure out how to sell our research to somebody, do you feel in your mind that that's taking brain power away from doing the actual research? Yes, I do. I, and I honestly say when it comes to selling our research, I have hit really hard with the terms brought up in this book simply for the, the wall of why is it not enough to simply say what I'm doing and that's why it's good. I can, um, you know, there are certain things, for instance, we cannot expect customers to be as well versed in our own research as us, that if we live, breathe it, it's 24-7. So explaining explaining the basics of it, where we're going with it, um, and how, you know, a few brainstormy ideas of how we see it applying to your organization, that's on us. Sure. Like, you know, we don't expect all of our customers to have a thorough understanding of abstract algebra and or probability theory. I mean, otherwise, why hire us, right? right <laughs> you know, that's right. what you're hiring us for. Right. So, so an exposition. So that's not quite what you're talking about. What do you, what do you kind of mean when you said that? Well, like, I personally value a straightforward description of a solution to a problem. And I can determine from that, oh, it's worthwhile. Why wouldn't I value it? So you look at the tech specs and go straight past the the marketing. That's actually what I do every time I buy something. So whenever somebody tells me like, you need to move to the pitch side of it, which is you got to be a little more entertaining. You got to sell this. And when they say the verb sell, they're actually loading that word up with a lot more. It uh, It's a hard thing for me. It's coming to understand that and reading the book is helping. Yeah, reading the book is, is definitely helping. And um, in particular, it's given us a lot of food for thought that we've kind of distilled down to this conversation for the first chapter. And um, what we're learning is that, you know, there was a reason that many successful businesses started with someone who is definitely leaning more towards naturally being good at sales and someone who is really good at burrowing and doing that back-end work. And for us, neither of us would rather do anything but burrow and do that back-end work. It's not an inclination of mine to go and sell in the way of a salesman. Right, and it's a challenge for me. I tend to be the one that's doing it only because, well, that's just kind of how it's working out right now. Yeah, that's the way the arrangement you know, is at the moment. You're still employed full-time. And, yes. Um, so you, it falls to you to go and actually speak with the people and have more meetings, although we've done some together. Mm-hmm. We do some together as, and, you know, to keep up. I have the freedom um, of, of time to keep up the social media presence that has been extremely valuable for us. Certainly. But if I, I admit it's draining. It's draining to the point where I have to, I have to step back. I have to figure out how to balance it because it is affecting my mathematical creativity because even socializing online is draining for me and figuring out 
you know, before I socialize online, figuring out the right mindset, you know, getting in that mindset is diametrically opposite of the mindset of the really deep research that, um, that I've done, the, the mindset that produces those, those ideas. So it's, it's kind of a big impact of scheduling for one thing, because if you have a day where it's like morning is loaded up with business calls and meetings then you can't really say, okay, well, then the afternoon that follows, I'm going to get deep into research. I can't. I cannot switch. Now, you know, I could, I maybe could write a post or an article, um, you know, something that's not particularly intellectually, it sounds, that sounds so pretentious. I was about to say intellectually challenging, but I sound like such an asshole. But, <laughs> you know, um, it, well, it doesn't require, you know, if I'm writing something on the basics of queuing theory, that doesn't require me to venture into the deep, dark, unknown of, uncreated mathematics right because that's where you're making things that don't exist yet and that takes that takes time and the ability for the brain to wander uninterrupted not uninterrupted even just uninterrupted by people you know knocking on the door and other stuff like that but i mean uninterrupted in my own mind yes and when i'm when i'm stuck in that business mode and worrying you're preoccupied about the the business stuff I, I myself am challenged to figure out how to let that go. I believe those those mindsets are mutually exclusive. I feel the same way. And that's that's a challenge for both of us because we are we are two introverts trying to run a business here. And that's not to say, of course, that I am, you know, have any less than full confidence, you know, in this. We no. we, we have full confidence in what we offer. Of course we do. Um, we believe that what we have is good. We believe that we are good at what we do. And we really just wanted to share some of the challenges that may be overlooked because extreme introversion is not considered a positive quality in a business person, businessman, no. businesswoman, whatever we are. Um, in fact, I don't even like using... The title, like we don't use titles like CEO, CTO. We don't do that because we don't feel like we don't feel like they fit. No, yeah, you'll notice how we introduced ourselves at the very beginning. We're just two mathematicians trying to produce research that makes the world better. That's that's sums it up. And what we would like to do is partially share our own journey through some of these challenges, uh, what we learn how we learn to deal with things, our thoughts on it, and... This book is is a particularly sharp lens. Yes, it's a great lens to look through, and it's going to serve as a great undercurrent. So this is one of our longer podcasts, so that does conclude um, the, first, uh, the first chapter that, you know, that was called The Rise of the Mighty Likeable Fellow. And the thing is, like, even with that term, right, when we say the word likable, I don't, I don't think, you know, people consider me unlikable but there's likable and then there's likable right mm-hmm. there's the likable of and there's certain people i know that are extroverted there's that my father's this way he is he is the kind of likable that puts even the most introverted and self-conscious person at ease sure. when he talks to you that is a character that is a character trait that i find extremely admirable just somebody that is that can just walk into anywhere and immediately is so comfortable with themselves no matter where they are. That, that other people, they can't really help. You can't but... really help but be drawn to them and be put at ease. Mm-hmm. And and feel like you can 
relate to them, no matter who you are. I can acknowledge that that's not a trait I possess. I can acknowledge I don't possess that either, and I admire those those that do. So what that means is your best salespeople are like that, right? Mm. The best salespeople are like that, and that's awesome because you feel like you they care about you. And it's not that we don't care about our customers, but there's still a vibe that is natural to those people that is unnatural for us. I like to think of it as like if you have the the continuum of likable and unlikable there is that point in the middle to me where yeah i would say you know we are professionally likable um but as mathematicians probably lean towards less of the socially likable i'm just closer to the the neutral on that i we'll say we're we'll say we're pretty neutral um and that's not that's not to say you know that is not something that everybody has to be. No. But that's the point of the chapter, sort of. That right. Is That is what is desired, particularly of sales and, and business people. That is what is expected. And so we're going to be working through these chapters and detailing some of our philosophies, you know, some of the reasons behind why we do things the way we do, why we've set them up, and some of our own challenges that hopefully some of you guys can relate to. And we would love to hear feedback about it. If oh, anybody of has opinions or can share stories of their own, we'd love to hear it. Yeah, and that's the thing. Introverts are kind of bad at revealing and talking about things. But the thing is, you know, even when even this being uncomfortable for us, we need to do it. We need to let people know that we exist. Yes. And we need to try to help others like us have a voice and maybe even maybe even the confidence to start your own thing from the, some of the lessons that we we learn. So, thanks for sitting in and listening with us on this first chapter. We're going to come back with the next one on our next episode. And uh, if you want to reach out, so the the official Twitter handle of uh, the Math Citadel is at Math Citadel. You can reach me at Mathpocalypse. And I'm at Jasonographer. And you can always, of course, go to our website and use a contact form. But I would say to keep the social media thing to a manageable level, it's typically Twitter is is the most responsive. Uh, We also have a Slack channel. It's pinned to the... um, profile of my Twitter handles, so join the Slack channel. We we are poking around there, too, and have conversations on all sorts of fun mathy things. We want to come together and speak with you about math. Yes. Math, LaTeX, books, and even just some general random stuff, you know, so definitely check that out. Join the Slack channel if you want to. People from all walks of life and all places. Oh, yeah. We have parents, engineers, other mathematicians, grad students. All interest levels. All interest levels. All interest levels and backgrounds. So definitely come join us. You know, we, we'd love to be able to talk talk that's, further. That's coming from two introverts putting our best foot forward. Yes. So thanks again for, for tuning in and we'll, we'll catch you next time.